Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Let's Chat Healthcare podcast. My name is Laura. I'm an emergency room nurse. Just so you know, this is the second part to Aaron's two-part episode. And if you haven't heard the first part yet, listen to that one first. I want to get right into it, so don't forget to subscribe to be notified when new episodes are released and find us on social media at Let's Chat Healthcare. All right, here's Erin to finish her story. After my second surgery, um, and after the recovery, my case was brought before like a panel of doctors, I guess. Um, and yeah, I know like you want to be special your whole life until you're like medically special and then you really don't want to be special. (laughs) So they were just trying to determine, you know, best course of treatment based on what had happened previously, knowing that the treatment like wasn't done in their facilities was kind of a big factor too. Mm. That's kind of another thing I've experienced going between like what is a major hospital, like kind of nationally recognized University of Michigan to my local hospitals. There's a lot of comparing Mm -hmm. and a lot of my U of M doctors are like, we don't trust anything that's not done here and sure, that's fine, but like I'm not going to drive to your lab to do blood work. Mm-hmm. Like that can be done by anyone. And that was another area of like having to advocate for what I needed and what I could thought I could handle mm-hmm. physically, mentally, emotionally, um, because their desire would have been literally for me to drive over for every little test. I think something that also makes it difficult is that there's no uniform charting system. Right. And like there's a part of me as a patient that wants to accept that that must be a bummer for them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But if I'm going to be accepting that that's a difficult scenario that you're in because I don't live local to your hospital and I'm choosing to be treated by you, that I need to accept some of that responsibility – But if you're not on the flip side willing to respect that you're asking me to drive two and a half hours to do blood work or to do this or to do that because you don't trust another person's system or Mm -hmm. it's going to be extra difficult for you to get through their medical files, but you're still capable, then I have a hard time like accepting. Respect doesn't go both ways. Respect for Mm -hmm. your time, respect for For my time and advocating for me and my family's needs and availability. And our time is valuable. Whether you're in cancer treatments or you're getting paid to work like a normal person or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like, sure, that's difficult, but can it be done? Isn't there someone on your staff who gets paid to access medical records? Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be that annoying patient. And like, if I can't drive out there, I'm not going to. Like, and you're just going to have to figure out a way to, I don't know fax or email or however you do it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was it was a challenge that I just wasn't anticipating because I'm not in the medical field and I can't be expected to understand that mm-hmm. operating systems don't work across every hospital platform. Um, but and, and it's, it's like something that you shouldn't have to suffer for. 
Right. Yeah. That was kind of, yeah. And if you want me to suffer through it, then how are you going to compensate me with help emotionally, Mm -hmm. physically, mentally? You know, Mm -hmm. again, this sort of demanding of you're demanding my respect and therefore I'm going to demand yours. Like if you expect me to know these things or to suffer through them, then I'm going to expect you to work alongside the things that I need then Mm -hmm. and the extra things that I need because I'm Aaron and not the person who just left your office, you know, and finding that voice and recognizing that advocating for yourself, though sometimes it feels selfish, isn't. Um, It's actually like not like that shouldn't even be considered a factor, you know, that I'm kind of demanding a good level of care for myself is, you know, something that should just be expected of patients. But I think we're so easily swayed into this mindset that like, oh, they know what's best. They're the experts. They're going to do the right thing every time. Mm -hmm. Um, They're still humans like who are flawed and make mistakes just because they get paid a lot more than you or understand a lot more than you or whatever else, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, they still make mistakes every single day, Mm -hmm. Um, little or big, um, hopefully little, but And I think something else to point out there is that it's you who makes your own healthcare process because they have so many patients coming in Mm -hmm. and out. They have so many, like they're not going to be able to, I mean, obviously they're going to tell all their patients that they want all the blood work done here, that they should drive that far. But you know yourself and you, you are what like makes yourself unique. Mm -hmm. So you need, you know what you need. You need to be able to. And it's hard, like with everything going on, like, yeah, I, I don't mean to say like you need, but like, it's, it's kind of up to you to make your healthcare process what you need because, exactly. because there's so many people going through it and you just can get lost as a number so easily. Yeah. And that's not really anyone's fault, right? Because like mm-hmm. you said, if you take on the mindset of what the per- healthcare professionals are going through. I might be their 30th patient of the day. Mm-hmm. I can't expect them to remember me and my chart and have it, you know, memorized or whatever. Mm-hmm. So then the expectation should be on me, the patient, to first of all, like know your own body and mm-hmm. what you're capable of giving, which can change every single day or even hour by hour. What I'm capable of giving is going to vary based on the treatments that I'm receiving or the news that I just heard, or whatever else. But just like owning that, like, mm-hmm. this is my healthcare, and I'm going to do my best to work, you know, this really great system to my favor, because there are really good doctors and really great nurses and a team of medical experts who will help you. But at a certain level, if you don't fight for that help, you're only going to get mediocre care. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's also why it's important to, if you are blessed enough to have someone there to support you, because putting those expectations on a patient that's already going through what they're going through is a lot. So to be able to have that caretaker there by your side to advocate 
for you and be that right that's huge and that's one like really huge thing that I recommend whenever you're in the hospital is to always have someone there that's watching and watching out for your needs because like like I said before it's easy to just become a room number Mm -hmm. definitely and that person that's advocating for you knows your unique needs and I just think that's really important if you are able to have someone like that yeah and I've been really blessed like obviously with my husband but also like just a great team of people around me family and friends alike who have you know were willing to be by my side you know, when my husband wasn't able to, or when we needed that extra voice to say, you know, we do need this extra care and Mm -hmm. we're going to, you know, many voices are obviously greater than one. And sometimes that's what it takes to get, you know, what you need. So Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely being able to have someone with you, um, even for like the most minimal Mm -hmm. appointments, like whatever you consider, like not that important I don't know. Like it's just if you don't want someone with you like recording it or always taking notes because Mm -hmm. you never know when those notes are going to turn into something that you need to know, you know, a couple weeks, months. Especially with like that thing we were talking about, about it being hard to transfer charts. Yeah. Like you you can be that consistent person. So Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's right on. So – after this panel convened or whatever, they determined that the best course was to try this radioactive iodine again, but a much more um, like severe dose of it. So we proceeded down that route and it actually wasn't that long after my second surgery that we were able to get an appointment on the books. I ended up, however, um, getting pregnant, which was a massive surprise. Um, And first it was like really scary um, because we were um, obviously trying to fight cancer. And then you're like, okay, totally switch mindsets. Mm -hmm. And then we were like, is this safe um, for me? Like, do I, you know, how urgent is this fight for me? Um, What will result, you know, from like waiting nine months or longer. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, kind of immediately reached back out to these doctors and this panel of medical staff who had made this decision. Now there's new information, you know, what would you advise? And um, thankfully, like the doctor that we were meeting with to do this uh, radioactive iodine, I can't remember, the name of her specialty, I think it was like something in nuclear medicine, okay. but she said, we can put a pause on this. Like, we'll get you through this pregnancy and then get you, you know, on track for receiving this dose, you know, once you've recovered from pregnancy and your hormone levels are back down and all of this stuff. Um, so that was kind of a massive sigh of relief for us. And then at the point at which maybe a week or two later, we were kind of starting to get excited about the possibility. Um, I ended up miscarrying, Mm. which was really difficult, obviously. We just kind of felt like, again, after so many things have gone wrong, like I had definitely been in seasons of depression, but this season was extra 
and longer and darker. And it was just one more blow. Like I didn't ask to be pregnant. We weren't trying to get Mm -hmm. pregnant. It was one of those things that happened. And so at the point at which I had accepted this as like a really beautiful gift, it was taken away again. It's just so many doors closed. Yeah. I really felt like, you know, like, is anything ever going to happen? That's good for me. Mm -hmm. That feels good because I could recognize that, you know, like this surgeon um, who was not very nice or gentle, that she was good for me. She was what I needed. She was what my body needed to treat this cancer, but it did not feel good at all, Mm -hmm. you know, or maybe an even more extreme example would be my mom. Like she wasn't going to survive this terminal illness and it was a sweet blessing for her to pass quietly and quickly um, without months and years of suffering and treatment, Um, but that didn't feel good. So I had Mm -hmm. kind of learned in my life to accept that a lot of really good things don't feel good in the human sense of that word. Um, And I think that acceptance came with a great amount of like faith and just accepting like harsh realities, I guess. Um, But it didn't make it easy. Like everybody wants to feel good. Like including cancer patients, maybe especially cancer patients. You just, you spend a great deal of time and mental energy and physical energy to get healthy. And even though, you know, whatever course of treatment you receive might be the healing, to get to that place of healing was, you know, a massive battle and a fight. And um, at the point at which we were pregnant, I was just like thinking, you know, the Lord for giving us something finally, I felt like that was um, happy. And then it was taken away. And, um, you know, I had to jump right back into this fight for, you know, I was never dying from cancer. Thyroid cancer is rarely terminal, if ever for anyone, especially someone of my age and um, otherwise health, healthy standing in life. But at this point into my second year of battling this disease, having just lost a baby, and now they're asking me to get back up and, you know, receive this treatment. Yeah. I was just like, I cannot, like, I don't know who you think you are or like what you're looking at that makes you think that I'm capable of this. But like, I am not feeling capable at all. And for me and my husband, like being willing to accept that a great piece of fighting any sort of health or disease is the mental an emotional capacity to do that. Mm. And that sometimes you need medication and sometimes you need more than that. And you need someone specific to talk to. And maybe you need even more than that. And you need friends and family to come over every day and tell you that you're capable of doing this. 
and that they're going to do what it takes to see you to the other side. And in this case, that summer, like that is, I needed all of that and more because I just came to this place where like, I can't, I'm, I'm just kind of done. Like I don't, I'm tired. I'm beyond tired, you know, and I, um, no fault of my own have now been diagnosed twice with cancer, lost my mom, lost a baby. And now I still have to keep going and receive maybe like the worst treatment thus far in this journey. And at the end of it all, um, I did make it through that. And I did um, start that treatment, uh, the radioactive iodine treatment, and kind of got the help I needed on that end oncologically, but also mentally. So yeah, that kind of brings us to like August of 2019. I was, it's so weird to use this term now and not refer to COVID, but I was quarantining (laughs) um, because I had started this radioactive iodine treatment and you can't share a bathroom, you can't share sheets with people or food or whatever. So I just... Talk about the (laughs) mental difficulty. Yeah, (laughs) like you're already in this mental place of like, this is really difficult. And then they're like, now you need to be by yourself for five to seven days. When you're feeling at your physically worst. Yeah. And I was on a really like horrible diet to accommodate um, this new treatment. And I was not allowed to take my thyroid meds um, because those would work against the treatment. So um, no thyroid And as it turns out, having known nothing about thyroids and then learning everything about them, like without a thyroid, your body just kind of shuts down. Mm -hmm. I consider myself to be a pretty like with it, smart person. I'm like kind of well-learned and without thyroid meds, I literally tried to cook something and used cups instead of teaspoons like a whole cup of salt. And I just didn't even know that I was doing anything wrong. Mm. So I wasn't, you know, at a certain point off the meds, I would like no more cooking for me, like no more phone calls, like no cleaning. I just couldn't even function. So I was literally holed up in a hotel room in Ann Arbor, driving myself to and from these radioactive iodine treatments. Wow. And two days in, everything started, you know, when like doctors are going to tell you something bad or nurses have bad news for you, but they're kind of like, I'm not allowed to tell you, but as a patient, you like, you can read it. Yeah. Yeah. And you're just kind of like spit it out. And usually they're not allowed to until, you know, they get the proper approval. Um, so I can see that something is happening and I call my husband, um, and I am like, you need to get to Ann Arbor like now. Something's going on. I don't know what, but something's wrong. And he borrowed my dad's car and got (laughs) all the way there in like well under two hours, just in time for this nuclear medicine doctor to say, this treatment isn't working for you. We literally don't know what else we're going to do. We're discharging you and you need to go oh home gosh. and we have no plan. Oh my god. I thought I'd been through the worst of my own like 
treatment. And this was by far worse than anything else. Just hearing who I considered to be the expert who was going to fix me say like, I don't know what else to do. And she had just, you know, been through me or been with me through the miscarriage and kind of shed a couple tears and was a woman herself when I started crying and just like, what do you mean? You don't know. She also just didn't completely break down, but she definitely shed a tear or two and was just with us in that moment. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what to tell you. I can tell you that I will, I will figure this out. I just don't have the answers right now. And Mm -hmm. at that point they were calling my cancer, um, differentiated papillary thyroid cancer. And again, you want to be special and different your whole life. And you're told like, you know, do all this and be that and don't, you know, put yourself in a box. And in this scenario, you want to be in that box. You want to be (laughs) the most undifferent. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So that was a really hard drive back to Grand Rapids and what seemed like an eternity waiting for these doctors to confer and call me back. I don't even, to me, it felt like two months passed, but I, in all honesty, I know that not even two weeks passed before I heard anything, but Mm -hmm. it just was forever. And eventually though, I did hear back that they were going to do like external beam targeted radiation. So not anything that's injected, like you're kind of that light therapy where they essentially burn Mm -hmm. the cancer cells from like the inside out. And yeah, so that started. That must've been scary. It was, I know. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it's just a lot of whiplash. And again, as not a Googler, I was like, if you say so, if the panel says so, you know, as long as you're communicating with me and you have a plan and you're sending me to someone decent who's not, you know, new to the field, like Mm -hmm. I'm going to just go with it. So we met a new oncologist and this person is local to where I live because radiation is every day. So it's not something that you can just drive across the state for. So, yeah, I started that on September 3. Um, So, again, I know that not even a month passed because it was August when I was slotted to get that initial treatment of radioactive iodine, and that obviously didn't work out. So, in all reality, like I know looking back, I can recognize that things moved very quickly, but in those moments, it felt like a turtle or a snail or something very, very slow when you'd rather be riding a cheetah and just get to the finish line. Mm -hmm. They determined that 33 doses of external beam radiation was, you know, kind of what was needed. And um, they wanted it to be even extra or maybe a little bit more severe because I had been through so much. Um, And it had been you know, years of fighting a disease that really should have only been a singular surgery. So I really appreciated this new oncologist's approach to my treatment. And he was um, very much 
understanding and sympathetic while also being very knowledgeable and a desire to treat and to help me heal. He was just um, kind of a breath of fresh air for us and what we needed to kind of get through what we hoped and what turned out to be, you know, kind of the last and final healing treatment for me. Um, Just hearing you talk about it, it sounds like since he was able to be there for you in the ways that you needed, you had so much more peace going into I did. I had learned at this point, you know, a steep learning curve. Like I need to tell him exactly what I need and he needs to listen. And he did just that. There was an aspect of like my mental health care that he really was there for and stepped up for. Um, That's awesome. I'm highly claustrophobic. And this type of radiation, (laughs) this one in particular requires being strapped down to a table, you know, for the 15 minute sessions. And that was, you know, a huge battle for me, but he helped me with the drugs that I needed and also just the right thought processes and breathing exercises. And in and through it all was just very much validating that what I was feeling and what I was experiencing was real and true for me and could be conquered Mm. no matter how difficult that was. So um, I think this oncologist, if I had to pick a favorite, definitely was that for me. And it helps now looking back, knowing that he offered that kind of healing treatment. Also, he has like a special place in my heart because yeah. At the end of it all, you know, his was successful. It was just a long journey though, 33 treatments. And besides having had cancer for a couple of years, like a pretty normal, healthy 30 year old. Um, but I, these treatments um, knocked me like more than any of the other surgeries. And I ended up with a feeding tube um, because I just couldn't keep any food down. I had lost Mm. over 30 pounds in less than 30 days and just spent all my hours that weren't asleep hugging a toilet bowl. Mm. And again, just the importance of having a doctor, you know, recognizes that that is an issue and will take your call no matter what time it is and get you the treatment that you need you know, even on top of what he's doing. So he was able... Just like recognizing that quality of life. Yeah, like, sure, you need this treatment, but you also need to, you know, be able to survive it, not just, you know, be overcome by it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, the office was just really helpful for myself and um, for my husband. And actually, there were five other people, including my dad and four of my friends who ended up driving me every day because my husband obviously couldn't drive me every day. And I wasn't allowed to drive myself um, because of the drugs and just the weakness that I was experiencing due to not eating. Again, the importance of, you know, having those people by your side when you're unable to advocate for yourself, those people recognizing like, this is not okay. Like she should not be this sick. What else can you do for her when I wasn't able to say that for myself was a blessing that I know not everyone gets. And I'm just so thankful to have been provided with such a great 
support system during that time. And I'm just thinking again about how just advocating for yourself is so important yeah. because they they don't they don't right. see you they see you while you're there getting a treatment and obviously mm-hmm. like during the treatment it's going to be difficult. Yeah, I mean, I don't know we it was um a couple months of that treatment. We finished right before Thanksgiving or right I think actually I finished right before Halloween. And then the way like radiation works is it's very cumulative. So even though my treatments had finished, the worst weeks were the weeks after my treatment because just like the burning on my skin, like my skin was literally just fluffing off those last couple weeks and the symptoms of like the dry mouth and just where the treatments had been targeted, um, all of that just got a lot worse um, like those first two weeks in November. But right before the new year, they were able to do, I was healthy enough to get a PET scan um, to kind of determine if the treatment had done what we'd hoped. They'd thought, you know, by then they could have a semi-clear picture of my thyroid bed and neck area and it was even like the cancer was even kind of up by my ears and stuff. So we did receive really good news um, right before the new year that they didn't see any signs of disease. Mm. And that was, you know, kind of an amazing way to start and jump into 2020. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I got, so I kind of slowly entered back into work. We went on a little trip and then COVID kind of entered the scene and took over again, um, or not again, but took over for real, like for the first time. Mm-hmm. I Once they opened, because for a while they kind of closed PET scans in my area unless they were emergent. So I wasn't able to get that secondary scan, which they had wanted to just kind of make sure that it really was, uh, the cancer really was gone. So in April, finally, they opened up the machine for like kind of non-emergent patients. And I was able again to get a second clean scan. And that's really when we had this massive like sigh of relief, like the cancer's really gone. Like it's been at that point, six months since my last treatment, just about, and to have a really, really clear scan was just something, I don't know, I guess for a while, maybe I thought I would just live with this forever. It had felt like I'd live with it forever. So I just assumed Mm -hmm. that it would feel like this for the rest of my life. But we just had a really sweet moment. It was a televisit, obviously, first of many. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But just a sweet moment with my husband. And I was actually with my sister and brother-in-law Um, And we just listened to the oncologist say, there are no signs of disease. You know, I'm feeling really good about this. And like, I'll see you back in six months for another PET scan. And that's awesome. It was, yeah, it was really lovely, even in the midst of COVID. So just a moment, again, something. Hearing good news for once. (laughs) Hearing even the good news of like, you know, no signs of disease while being in the midst of like a global pandemic was another lesson in this kind of life can be 
bitter and it can be sweet um, and that it's okay. And having walked through so much of my own health struggles, not that, not to say that I was minimizing the effects of COVID on the greater, grander world, or that I wasn't scared myself on a certain level, but having had cancer, my perspective was, you know, not necessarily like, oh, it can't get worse than cancer or what could be worse than what I've already been through, but just that, you know, life really does go on. Um, Life goes on past death in the case Mm -hmm. of losing my mother, as awful as that was. Life goes on past horrific diagnosis. Life goes on as you're fighting, you know, and even after the fight. So my you know, perspective. And as I watched the world face COVID and then, you know, I haven't had COVID, but as I've watched, you know, friends and family kind of struggle through accepting this pandemic for what it is, I definitely had a perspective that just allowed me and my husband and my family, I think a greater sense of peace than maybe some other people, simply because we walked through something different. And we've allowed that kind of really bad experience to work some good in our life, even though, you know, there was also a lot of bad. And that has served me tremendously, not just as it relates to the pandemic, but, you know, little things to bigger things, um, job things, home things, you know, just this sense of like bad stuff can happen. But a lot of times, like the outcome, or the growth that can happen through the midst of a really horrific situation can turn out, you know, to be better than what you maybe would have planned for, mm-hmm. you know, had you not been through. You said there was that life can happen beyond the diagnosis. For sure. And I would hope that some people could maybe learn this from watching others go through it or even maybe from listening or hearing my story, you know, that there is life beyond and through and in the midst of diagnosis, Mm -hmm. not to say that it's going to be easy life or the life that you had envisioned, but a lot of times those things can only come from experiences that teach you something, Mm -hmm. but you have to be open to that teaching and you have to be open to that growth and There have certainly been times where I have not been open (laughs) and I just really needed a day or hours or weeks to just be like, this is crap and Mm -hmm. I'm just going to sit here and let this be really crappy and maybe later I will try (laughs) to find the joy because there's a time for everything Um, and there's definitely a time to grieve a diagnosis. Um, And there'll be many times throughout my life where I will grieve um, my first, you know, three years of my 30s. They were really defined by cancer. And I'm okay by saying that they were defined by cancer because the cancer wasn't just bad for me. It was really good. And what turned out to be even more beautiful in my life and in my marriage was when we got the really devastating news that my husband also had cancer. Um, He was diagnosed the very end of July with Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
And I wouldn't ever wish anyone to have cancer, let alone, um, you know, my dearest love. Now being on the other side of that, looking back and seeing the beauty in the relationship that we have because we've both been cancer patients Mm. is a level of understanding, a level of empathy, love, grief that we share because we've both been the caregiver and we've both been the patient. Mm. And our marriage is better because of cancer. So you know, I'm okay with saying that the first three years of my 30s were defined by cancer because it wasn't all bad and it was really hard, but there was a lot of good that came from me having cancer and a lot of good that came from my husband having cancer, even though the cancer itself was horrific and the treatments were, you know, terrible. Um, and I don't ever want to do them again. Um, and I don't ever want to watch my husband suffer through them again. Mm-hmm. But now having been through it and on the other side of it, it's just, I don't know. It's just all I can think to say is just, it's really beautiful. And I'm deeply thankful Um for all that I've learned because of what I've been through and recognize that I wouldn't be the person that I am today if I hadn't have if I hadn't been diagnosed if I hadn't watched my mom suffer and die in 6 weeks from cancer and if I hadn't stood by my husband for 6 months of Hodgkin's lymphoma like I would be less than I am now and not as great for my family and for the world um, and for whatever else, you know, um, comes down my path. So, yeah. Wow. I know I've said this a million times, but I'm so thankful to Erin for coming on and talking to us about her journey. And I think in order to be able to better understand the healthcare system, it's really important for us to hear from people who have gone through these experiences. That way we can have a better understanding of what the system is like and how to improve it. I also think hearing these stories can hopefully help us better support and care for those who are going through something similar. Don't forget to subscribe to be notified when new episodes are released and find us on social media at Let's Chat Healthcare. Thanks again for listening. My name is Laura, and I'll see you next time on the Let's Chat Healthcare Podcast.